We turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. We pick up our study at verse 12. Hebrews 12, 12. And the next section that we'll be working with for the next couple of weeks, verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Father, it is very clear upon even first reading that our text ends with a sober illustration concerning the Old Testament man Esau, who is not the man of promise, as is Jacob. Help us as we work for a couple of weeks in this text. It certainly ends in a sober track to understand the essential nature of its thrust, its practical application to those who are indeed born-again children of God. Thank you for the occasion and the perpetuation of study. Help us then this morning to the benefit of our souls. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The first word is wherefore. As it was back at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, wherefore. Robert Gromacki identifies the word as an inferential conjunction, which is just a fancy way of saying that the word connects and draws application from the truths previously communicated. The word wherefore, chapter 12, verse 1, looks back to chapter 11 and the multiple examples of enduring faith as recorded from the Old Testament scriptures concerning those Old Testament saints. And of course, that wherefore then applies the truth of enduring faith to the New Testament life of the believer. The Hebrews were told that they were as if in a marathon, running with need of endurance in faith. They were reminded that the Old Testament saints had finished their course, and then they were brought to bear the witness of the ultimate testimony of enduring faith as seen in the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that is brought to bear in all of his perfections. And then, rather buried at the beginning of the chapter, not found until verse 3, you have the command to the reader. A command is found to continually consider the perfection of Christ regarding his earthly experience in trust and obey in the face of earthly difficulty and suffering. God the Father's purpose and plan for his capital S son to suffer, even to the point of death, even the death on the cross, is understood in the terms of our eternal salvation. He died for our sins. Christ's suffering, the suffering of the capital S, Son of God, was for our eternal salvation. But then starting in verse 4 of this 12th chapter and running through verse 11, the Hebrews are told that God the Father has a purpose and a plan for all his sons in suffering. Hebrews are told that God the Father's purpose and plan for all his sons is to use earthly difficulty and suffering as a tool for their earthly sanctification. So when I study the Bible, I like to make things simple so that they're clear in my mind. And the little chart that I've now written in the side of my Bible has capital S Son, obvious reference to Jesus Christ, eternal salvation. And then in contrast, sons, small s, sons, as in children of God. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. So as to the son, the purpose of suffering was eternal salvation. As to the sons, the purpose of difficulty and suffering and God's disciplinary hand is for their earthly sanctification. Eternal salvation, the Son. Earthly sanctification, the sons. Eternal salvation, the Son. Earthly sanctification, the sons. That's what this passage is about. This passage is about the earthly development of becoming that which we are in Christ, namely God's holy people. You and I know from the previous study of 4 through 11 that God has called us to holiness, the very holiness which he himself is holy. God's parental training method includes nourishment. It includes instruction. It includes chastisement. God's parental training method is directed towards the believer being made, verse 10, verse 10, partakers of his holiness. This kind of heavenly tough love in training is never enjoyable presently, said the text as studied last week. 
but God's perfect parental training yields, so says verse 11, the peaceable fruit of righteousness in those so trained. Wherefore, chapter 12, verse 12, wherefore, this second inferential conjunction takes us back to the running metaphor of a marathon as we saw it at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. And this, wherefore, helps us to know what to do with the truth of God's parental training of every believer in holiness. God is holy. He wants every one of his children to be holy as he is holy. God is at work in my life. God is at work in your life unto holiness. Wherefore, or so what, or here we go then, or there's more for your consideration, chapter 12, verse 12 through 17. The tenor of our text takes on a, a persona of an athletic coach who is likewise a runner with you, with me, in the race called faith. The running coach herein says that he knows the race of faith is long and that you are running hard, as is he. But as he pulls up beside you in the run to which we've been called in earthly sanctification, uh, he has some poignant words of advice and reminders of necessary diligence for you and likewise to himself as it relates to finishing well and helping other people on the team to finish well. I can envision these words coming forcibly through heavy breaths while someone is running. Now, I tease the teens who do run in this church uh, about the fact that they run with nobody chasing them, and I don't think that's so smart, but nonetheless, uh, there's one thing I don't know much about these days, and that's running. I don't run. And I don't run much. But if you want to get the tenor of this text, if you want to understand the, the nuance of the text, you kind of, at least in your mind, you've got to do this. And you've got to keep that going. And it's hard to keep it going. I about want to faint right now, but I mean, it's hard to, hard to keep that going. And as you're doing the... Then your coach comes running up right beside you. And what he first says to you is, lift up. The hands would hang down. And feeble knees. We need to see this entire passage of Scripture as the forcible words from one who is running alongside of you. And when you hear it that way, 
It has some phenomenal, practical blessedness for the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ our Lord. The first thing that I would summarize from verse 12 is, number one, watch your posture. Verse 12, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The command to lift up is most literally straighten up. Now, I have this vague recollection of hearing those words from my mother in church. (laughs) I think I was a young boy. We were sitting about halfway back on the left-hand side, and the exact words of my mother were, Timothy, straighten up! And I knew that I was doing something in the church service that I was not to be doing. Nonetheless, your coach comes alongside you, in the form of the revelator, the writer of Revelation to the Hebrews. And he comes running beside you, and he speaks to you, first of all, about your running posture. Your running posture is not in good form. Your hands are hanging down. You're barely picking up your feet. I have a very vivid recollection of being a boy in the woods with my dad very early on. And he said two things to me. Number one, quit sniffling. It's apparent to me that deer don't like the sound of this. Quit sniffling, my dad said. We're out for deer. And then when we were walking, he said, pick up your feet. I guess I was shuffling through the woods, and therefore the leaves were rustled and the sticks were broken. And so my dad said to me in my first days of hunter's training, pick up your feet and quit sniffling. Later I asked him, what am I supposed to do? And he said, let it run. (laughs) Another sermon, another time. The coach pulls up alongside, and he is huffing and puffing as he says these words forcibly. Pick up your hands. Straighten up your posture. You're not in a good running posture. The depiction here is of a runner about ready to stop running altogether. And this particular biblical advice has a rather phenomenal biblical history. What did I just say? I just said this idea of straighten up your hands which are hanging down, your knees which are feeble. Uh, Straighten up. Pay attention to your posture. Uh, it 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 is really the end of an amazing biblical, historical uh, testimony of exhortation, of admonition, of testimony. Job, Old Testament Job, a contemporary with God's man Abraham. Job was told by his friend, 
one of the five, that he had been. Job was told by one of his five friends that he had been an excellent coach in the way of living troth. Uh, Eliphaz told Job that he had instructed many to strengthen those weak hands and those feeble knees. Eliphaz put those exact words into the mouth of Job and said, Job, you were such a great Bible teacher. You were such a great Bible teacher. Job, you were such a great Bible teacher. You taught many people to strengthen their hands and to pick up their feeble knees. And of course, when Eliphaz said that to Job, he went on to criticize the righteous man unfairly. Nonetheless, the testimony of Job as a friend and as a coach, in the truth, employs the exact same language as we have it here in Hebrews 12.12. 12. If you want to check that out in Job, it would be Job chapter 4, 3 and 4. But then, but then, after that reference to hands and knees, hands and knees, Job, there is this amazing moment in Old Testament prophecy concerning the straightening up of the people of God as to their hands and their knees as recorded by God's prophet Isaiah. And I'd like you to turn there with me because you've got to see this. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. God's faithful prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 34 spoke of God's judgment and vengeance being poured out on the earth. And then is the explanation of why God's judgment and vengeance is going to be poured out on the earth. And the reason why has to do with his holiness and the demand for holiness. You see, God is holy and God demands holy. And so after telling the nation of Israel that God is holy and demands holiness, and that because of the lack of holiness on the earth, that God is going to pour out on the earth vengeance and judgment. Isaiah then in chapter 5 gives to the people of God the only reason that they can possibly face that news of God's demand for holiness unmet with any degree of happy satisfaction. And I thought about reading 35, 1 to 3, and then I thought about reading 35, 1 to 7, and then I thought, oh, forget it, I'm reading 35. Here we go. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. 
it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Chapter 34, God's judgment is coming. God's vengeance is coming. God's judgment is coming. God's wrath is coming. And yet, chapter 35, it's going to be great when God is done. It's going to be great when God is done. It's going to be great when God is done. Why? Because God is going to do something. Verse 3, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. And we might add, in light of the revelation of what God's going to do. Verse 4, say to them, that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be stopped, unstopped. Then shall the lame leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. And in the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wow, what a marvelous thing God is going to do. So many things in that chapter are reportable concerning the reality of God's kingdom come. I've often heard about the desert blooming like a rose. I've often heard about the, uh, uh, about the, the streams of, uh, or the rivers within the desert. I've often heard about some of the glorious descriptions here of the great thing that is coming. But the point of Isaiah 35, the point of Isaiah 35 is how that is indeed going to become a reality. And it is a reality because God does that. Only God can do that. No man can do that. Only God can do that, and God will do that. That's what God's prophet said to the nation of Israel. And here we are studying a book called Hebrews, and I'm not one. Hebrews, most of you aren't one. 
And yet we're applying the truth of God written to the Hebrews to ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ because we understand from the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 35, and the New Testament scriptures, Hebrews chapter 12, that if anybody around here is ever going to end up holy, God is going to have to do that. And because you and I know that is God's promise to us who believe, you and I are to run and run on. Hands up. Knees hitting the sky. Keep those knees driving up. Pick up your feet, pick up your hands, watch your spiritual posture. You are not on a losing team. Your team does win. Keep running, keep running, keep running. Your team wins. Holiness is guaranteed, the people of God, by God himself. So the work of the Christian life is God's work. All you and I have to do is cooperate. And what a sad scenario that any of us should refuse or grow soft on cooperation. So the first thing that we have here is watch your posture because God will make us holy by his own calling and power to do so. Don't quit running for the goal of victory in absolute holiness is just ahead as God's own guarantee in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good form enhances good function. Pick up your hands, drive those knees upward. Work to maintain a good running posture while you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. It's one of the reasons why coaches so often uh, harp upon certain elements of posture. The batter is constantly told in the batter's box, keep your elbow up, keep your elbow up, keep your elbow up. Because that posture helps you to present the barrel of the bat to the ball in such a way that it's going to enhance the hit. It gives the batter greater control over hitting the ball. And likewise, every element of athletic endeavor has these little coaching nuances to it. And when it comes to the believer's life, here's the coaching nuance. Keep your hands up. Keep driving those knees upward in your race of faith before the Lord, knowing that you are on the winning team, knowing that Jesus Christ has secured for you and me the victory. Watch your posture. Number two, stay on the course or stay on the track. Verse number 13, and make straight paths. 
Let me say that a little differently. Make straight tracks. The word pass here specifically is uh, presented to us in a way that we know that it's talking about uh, the aspect of, of the things that are left behind the runner. Now, if you are watching the runner run, you can see the track that he runs on. If he's on a track, you can see the lane in which he's running. Uh, uh, but uh, when you draw a runner or you draw uh, uh, someone racing, a lot of times you'll, you'll draw behind them smoke or flames or, or footprints as they move down in a particular uh, direction. And, and, and that part of the verse kind of uh, uh, relates to that. It, it says literally in the process of running, remember the coach now is, <laughs> he's saying, uh, make fast tracks, make straight paths make uh, straight uh, uh, tracks. It's an idea of staying on the course, uh, keeping your eyes going forward. Uh, Don't be stepping uh, to the left or to the right. Why? Well, if you're not running directly towards the goal, you could waste time or energy. Why? Run straight. Why run straight? Well, because if you don't, you could potentially injure yourself. I couldn't help but remember that, that section of Proverbs where you have an excellent statement of almost the exact same thing, but in a little different words. For the sake of time, just listen to it. Proverbs 4, 25 to 27. Let thine eye look right on, and thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, And let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. One thing I've learned as an older individual is that it is essential for me to look where I'm going. Now, it's always essential to look where you're going, but I tell you, when I was young, I could look that way and still run this way. And somehow my peripheral vision still kept my balance and kept my, uh, my life going in the right direction, even though I wasn't looking that way. I mean, I used to have that ability. That ability is G-O-N-E, gone. If I'm going to go this way, I have to look that way. If I'm going to go down, I have to look down. If I'm going to go up, I have to look up. There is no fudging in my life anymore, or I can tell you this firsthand, I will not get where I am going in the manner of which I would desire. Some of you are laughing because you don't know. Some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Bible says spiritually you got to stay on course. The Bible says spiritually you got to stay on course. The Bible says spiritually you got to stay on course. And another reason why you must stay on the course has to do with your influence upon other runners. If a runner goes off course, he or she can easily lead others to do the same. You may not be Wiley Coyote that purposely places a, a turn arrow in the wrong direction for the road runner, but your spiritual inattentiveness may well lead others astray. Run in faith, run enduringly, run on the course as God has prescribed you to run it. What tremendously practical advice is coming from our coach, the writer of Hebrews, to the Hebrews, as one who still runs. 
and yet coaches us. And the third thing, I just mentioned it from verse 14, is run to win. Verse 14, follow peace with all. Notice the word men, italics, meaning not found in the original text, but supplied for our clarity. Follow peace with all and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Consider the runner's pursuit. There are at least three Greek words translated follow in our English text. Most usually, the word translated follow comes from a Greek word meaning to partner or to companion with another. That is not the word here. Another word in the Greek uh, yields the English word mimic. And that is not the word here either. The word follow, verse 14, follow peace with all and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The word follow here means to actively pursue and is otherwise translated to persecute. The best modern English athletic term that we could select for this word follow would be the word drive. To drive away is to persecute. To drive toward is to pursue. You and I are to drive toward peace. You and I are to drive toward holiness. You and I are to drive toward peace with all people. You and I are to drive toward holiness with God. Paul said it to the Romans. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You and I, as believers, with a good spiritual sense of posture, staying on the course that God has set before us, ought to run so as to win in regard to peace. We ought to run in such a way as much as lieth within us to live peaceably with everybody. It's not always possible to live peaceably with everybody, but that ought to be our drive. And furthermore, it ought to be our drive to be holy, knowing that God is holy, has indeed, by faith in Jesus Christ, declared us to be fully holy before the throne room of heaven, and that someday we will be perfectly holy as God is holy, you and I ought to understand the drive in life to practice holiness as God is holy. Believers have a double drive, a drive towards peace with people, 
and a drive towards holiness with God. By faith in Christ, the believer is positioned in holiness before God. We know that when God's saving program is complete, the believer will be perfectly holy as God is holy. And therefore, it is ever and always a sobering truth that without holiness, no individual shall see God. And since holy is our divine place, start, and since holy is our determinate finish, we must now pursue holiness in practice. We must seek to live as we shall before God as holy. That's the summary of the great doctrine of sanctification. God is holy, 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 and we are holy in the start because of what God has begun in us. Holy in the finish because of God's guarantee to get it done. And we ought to be holy in practice, working in cooperation with the Spirit of God in becoming what we shall be, holy as before the Lord. The earthly difficulty in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was purposeful in the plan of God for our eternal salvation. Hebrews 12 teaches us that the earthly difficulty of the believer is purposeful in the heart and mind and power and control of our Heavenly Father unto our earthly sanctification. The capital S Son, eternal salvation. The Son's earthly sanctification. God used suffering, even the suffering of God the Son, unto death to save us from our sins. And God uses suffering and difficulty in this life, in my life, in your life, in order to help us in earthly holiness, earthly sanctification, knowing that we are holy before the throne of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We shall be holy when God completes that which he has begun. And in the meantime, you and I are to be on the drive in holiness as unto the Lord. So please, 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 today, don't just drive home. Drive home. Don't just drive home. Drive home. And let's make sure that we all talk about the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you this morning for the blessed reminder from this text of the drive in the believer's life unto your holiness. We have no thought whatsoever that we can do it apart from you. We have every thought that you've begun that in us. We have every thought that you will finish that in us. And we have every thought clearly this morning that that is your calling and that is your work within our lives this very day. You who have made us holy and shall make us perfectly holy have indeed called us and enable us 
to practice holiness right here, right now, on this planet Earth. And so help us, your people, in our drive unto thy holiness. For we do pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.